Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. You're listening to the Detroit Is Different podcast on the Detroit Is Different podcast network. All right, we are back in full effect in the Detroit is different podcast studios. And this time around, I have somebody that has been upon request from a couple of different people about really for a conversation like this, you need to talk to this guy. He knows a lot of stuff. And I just know some of the snapshots in the story. So it's like, I know some of the snapshots that you hear from like the, the, the street black folk that's like, oh, well, you know, Coleman was... <laughs> and then you know some of the corporate people like well you know one of the people that really helped with a lot of the development <laughs> and then I met him and I was like oh man this is like uh, somebody I guess I should have known for forever because he was like yeah wh- when you want to do it you want to do it tomorrow I was like okay I don't know about tomorrow <laughs> but definitely soon Charlie Beckham how are you today hey Kyrie, I'm doing just fine man I'm glad to be here glad we finally connected yes sir yes sir and uh, in the final connection and this is definitely a question that uh, you're, you're preparing for a one-man show. So some of this is going to be revealed in that. And I'm yes. sure it'll have, like, pictures and it'll have cues. No question. No question. It'll, it'll be like that Mike Tyson one-man show. <laughs> there you go. For well, you. That's, that's where I got the inspiration to do it. Hey, it wasn't, wasn't so. my idea. I, um, uh, when I decided I was going to do my book and my memoirs, uh, I finally got around to it. And while I was debating that in my mind, I happened to catch on YouTube, which is something rare for me because I don't usually go on YouTube. Uh-huh. But I saw Mike Tyson's one-man autobiography show on Broadway, which he did uh-huh. about six years ago. Yeah. And he did a fantastic job. And I said, well, hell, if Mike Tyson can do it, I can, and that's a great idea. Yes. So that's where I got the idea from, to tell the story rather than to just write about it. And uh, nobody's really done that here no. in Detroit. All my good friends who, who have retired have written outstanding books. Uh, and I said, well, I want to do something different. So that's where I got the idea from. So we're rehearsing right now. So you're right. This is perfect timing. Well, thank you, thank you, and I definitely, uh, I don't expect you to uh, be talking about street fights with Trevor Broderick. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, and biting off people's ears. <laughs> that will not be, <laughs> but it will definitely be full of a lot of things, no starting question. with this question right here. Yes, sir. Where you were like, it all starts, your family in Detroit. Yes. How did your family get to Detroit? Well, you know, we, uh, and a lot of people don't know this, and of course they'll, they'll learn it when, when we do the memoirs, but uh, I was born and raised uh, in the early years in Cincinnati, Ohio. Get out of here. Absolutely. Uh, my mom, uh, born and raised there, my dad was born in, in Georgia, but migrated to Cincinnati coming hmm. north and met my mother uh, way back in the early 1900s, of course. Uh, but I was born there, uh, born in the projects, Laurel Homes, mm. down on the west end of, of downtown Cincinnati. Mm. And what brought us here, my dad was a union organizer mm. uh, in Cincinnati, worked at the GM Norwood Assembly Plant there in Ohio, worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, got into the union, uh, and was doing such a good job, he caught the eye of the then president of UAW, uh, Walter Ruther, here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Walter Ruth offered him a job, said, I want you to come up and be my administrative wow. assistant, wow. Uh, which made him the first African-American to do that. And so uh, he took the job, much to the chagrin of most of us in the family, but he mm. dragged us along anyway. So in 1958, actually he came in 57 and commuted, 1958, 
uh, we moved here to Detroit as a family, moved into Russell Woods neighborhood. Okay, now a, a lot of different connections, even to my family, as my dad's from Cincinnati. Ah, uh, what is that, right? Yes. Uh, oh my goodness. Uh, Avondale community. Avondale, there you and, go. And I went to South Avondale Elementary School. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You were you were, you were probably <laughs> knuckling up every other day. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That is and so my, funny. And uh, I have a lot of family down there. They don't think their country. That country is all get up. It's like Cincinnati There's people. There's no question. I just I said that during rehearsal Northern yesterday. Kentucky. I said this was just a small southern town. I don't want to admit that, but since that is a small southern town, we just across the river from the south. You <laughs> <laughs> don't think that? Absolutely. Like, but but a great town. Uh, I loved it. Still go back. We don't have mm-hmm. as many relatives there as we used to, but that was our home base for a long, long, long time. Okay. And, uh, uh, my mom would still consider it her home. Uh, that's where her family was and stayed there and her mother and father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But we consider, since we've been in Detroit now for 60 years, we can consider this home too. Now, now making that transition as a kid, because certain things stick out as a kid a whole lot more. And me knowing a little bit about Cincinnati through my dad. Yes. Uh, a lot of Germans, some Russians, Ooh. like a, a, a different group of of I guess I would say European immigrants settled in Cincinnati. No question. Which had a different impact on like the lay of politics. That's right. That's the right. lay of infrastructure. Yes, sir. The lay of a lot of things. So let's talk a little Cincinnati is yeah. different before Detroit is different. What was it like what were some of the struggles your dad was facing? Because even to this day the infrastructures there yes. are are a lot different kind of because it's from a different part of Europe well, and how they see leadership. Well, that's right. And and, and you're right. And, and, and you mentioned that. I mean, a lot of Germans, it was a very conservative town and quite frankly still is. Yes. Um, and and was segregated like most sound cities up north back then. Um, I talked about the lower homes, which are where we were born. That was our, our projects. But, you know, we were segregated and that was down at the the West End uh, of Cincinnati, uh, Avondale, as you know, was was a Jewish community uh, mm-hmm. before they let us out of the, yeah. the lower homes and out of downtown. Uh, you know, Central Avenue, the West End, they called it. Uh, always a very conservative town, somewhat segregated. My dad saw that and found that. The, the advantage, though, w- when you find the difference between there and Detroit, Carrie, is that it, it was a, it's a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say small, I mean it, it, it's probably still only four or five hundred thousand mm-hmm. in, in population uh so so the the segregation was in smaller pockets uh, mm-hmm. uh, around the city but it was there uh you started going north in cincinnati uh black folks didn't do that much in, in the early 1900s 1920s uh we weren't welcome up there yeah. uh, and it wasn't until the 40s and 50s when we were welcome into the avondale neighborhoods and then you know if, if you recall avondale was the black neighborhood. I mean, here in Detroit, we we everywhere. Yeah. Whereas in Cincinnati, that was it, man. I mean, if you mm-hmm. went too far east, uh, you know, out near uh, the Lookin' Airfield and 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 uh, the Air Force Base out there, or too far west, there wasn't a lot of folks that looked like us. Mm-hmm. So we were downtown, the west end of downtown, and then we started migrating out uh, to Avondale, and that was it. Hmm. Uh, and so when I first went to South Avondale elementary school uh, it was probably half and half hmm. uh black and white and and i'm talking in the late 40s early 50s um so it, it, it's an interesting town uh, it has because it's small has continued to keep its conservative nature to it um you know uh, chief craig was the police chief in yes. cincinnati at one time yeah 
my very good friend uh, Saul Green uh, was the police monitor down there for the federal government for a number of years. Uh, and he told me about a lot of things. We're talking about just uh, five, six years ago, yeah. some of the problems that they still have uh, with the, the, the racial issues with the police department in Cincinnati. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's still a, a conservative, uh, kind of slow-moving town, uh, much different than Detroit, no question. So let's talk about that transition. When you came here, because like even that sets up structures and schools differently, did they look at you like, what's this country kid doing in my class right now? Like, what, what was that like coming to Detroit? No question. Certainly it was a shock to, to us in the family uh, as we came up. Uh, when we came, I was uh, still in elementary school. My, my oldest sister uh, had graduated and was about to get married. My brother, uh, Bill Beckham Jr., which everybody knows around this town, was just in his senior year. So he, he came and finished his senior year here. And my other sister was a sophomore, so they both were at Cass Tech. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it was a, a culture shock for us. Detroit, of course, is a much bigger town. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, quite frankly, Detroit's a country town, too. Man. Yes. It's just bigger. It's a lot of, it's uh, a lot of that here. Yeah, now, yeah. now, when we got here, Detroit was probably 35 40% African-American. So mm -hmm. it wasn't even 50% black at that time. Um, when we moved here into Russell Woods, and I tell this in my story, uh, Russell Woods was a predominantly Jewish community. Matter of fact, we were the, in 58, we were the first or the second black family to move on our block. Wow. One of the first to move into Russell Woods, and that was in 1958. What block? By, uh, on Sturdivant between Dexter and Homer. Oh, man. Right around the corner here. Okay. But that was in 1958. By 1960, Russell Woods was 100% black. Ain't that something. Jewish folks got up out of there quick as they could. Uh, and it's not like they were running from... Uh, what they thought to be uh, underprivileged, lower socioeconomic black folks. This was a, a middle-class black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I brag about the families and the people that were in uh, Russell Woods at, at that time. You know, uh, my dad in the union, uh, Nick Hood, and Nick, the Hood family grew up around the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, the Stinson family, uh, 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 um, Superior Building Barber Supply, Mel Jefferson down the street, Wallace Kirk, North Carolina, uh, mutual. We had doctors, lawyers, attorneys, everybody from there. Warren Evans mm -hmm. uh, grew up uh, not around the corner from here. And we played Little League Baseball together. Saul Green, Foots Green of uh, uh, Michigan Barber School. Lurie mm -hmm. Thompson that owned uh, Toll House Cleaners. Had several cleaners around. I mean, these were successful, established, middle-class black folk. Mm. Uh, but the Jewish community, you know, they, that's when they moved from there and continued that migration northwest mm -hmm. and ended up in the six-mile, seven-mile Wyoming uh, mm -hmm. Schaefer area over there. That's what turned Mumford into the Jewish high school that it was. Okay. Um, and so uh, we had, a, as a result, um, um, a good life in Russell Woods. I enjoyed it with Russell Woods Park, the Russell Woods Jazz Festivals, which they still have today. Yep. yep. Um, the 19th is coming up. Yeah. Even though I'm probably going to post this after that. <laughs> My dad's go. already asked me. He was like, can you do some pictures? And stuff <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be in effect. Uh, just a great neighborhood uh, and a good place for us to, uh, to, to grow up as young black kids looking at other successful middle-class black folks. And so... Uh, we didn't know anything different. Uh, folks like myself and Saul Green and Ron Thompson and, like I said, Warren Evans and Nick Hood Jr. and a whole mm -hmm. bunch of other folks, that's what we knew and that's what we saw every day were successful African Americans, uh, you know, living and playing and, and working there. Um, wow. And so it was great. I loved it. 
Um, and so it didn't take long for us to kind of forget about getting back to Cincinnati. Okay. Detroit became home. Okay. Uh, and my dad, as I say, was there at the UAW working for Walter Ruther, uh, one of the first black Af- uh, administrative assistants to him, and then served two UAW presidents after that, uh, mm-hmm. Leonard Woodcock uh, and uh, Doug Frazier. All right. Now, we're talking a little bit about that neighborhood because I'm always enamored when I hear these stories of back in the day about Dexter Boulevard yes. and just the, you know, the stories I hear from my late godmother and others yep. sp- particularly her and orthea barnes used to say yeah it was it was it was jazz yeah, clubs yeah. all up and down dexter yeah it was yeah. this bowling alley and, yeah, that's right the bowler drone yeah. on the corner of uh leslie and dexter mm-hmm. uh matter of fact uh, uh i forget his last name but grover a good friend of mine vince davis's dad owned that one of the part owners in that um there was a bar and i can't remember the name of it that was in the corner of the bowling alley that was famous mm-hmm. that was right on the corner of Dexter and Leslie right across the street from the Esquire Grill. Yes. Everybody remember the Esquire Grill, which was across the street on Dexter and Leslie. The Minor Key, which was a jazz club a little further down on Dexter and Calvert. Um, We had supermarkets, stores, dry cleaners, all up and down Dexter. Uh, At the corner of Dexter and Davidson was the Dexter Davidson Market. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, that was Jewish-owned when we first got there, of course. When they left, they left the store there, but they were still there and still owners. Uh, and when they moved to Oak Park, if you'll notice, there's a, a Dexter Davison market uh, on Coolidge and Nine Mile. That's the same place. Interesting. They just moved it. I um, but it was an outstanding market there. Um, uh, so, so that was a thriving commercial neighborhood there between Davison. If you went all the way down to Joy Road uh, mm-hmm. on Dexter, it was just outstanding. Now, I remember standing. Uh, on the corner of Dexter and Sturvent uh, in 1967, and we watched all of that burn uh, hmm. during the rebellion. Uh, and so now we're in the process, and, and I'm proud to say that the city has now targeted Russell Woods and the Dexter Davidson area as one of our um, revitalization neighborhoods. And so yeah. we're going to try to bring that area back yeah, uh, by building up that commercial strip. And as you know, we've got people now moving back into Russell Woods, people buying some of those homes, people rehabbing those houses. And hopefully we can get back to the Russell Woods of old. Well, when we left this Rosa Parks neighborhood uh, or Focus Hope neighborhood, that's, yes. you know, for me. Yep. Because then with my age. That's right. We moved over there off Leslie between, uh, we moved between, let's see, Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Well, not Pasadena, uh, between, what's that, Potofsky and yes, Broad Street. Potofsky and Broad Street, yes, sir. That's the long block. That's and, right. Uh, and just in that time, uh, my sister bought a house on Fullerton and when she bought the house on Fullerton maybe in like I want to say 2014 okay sold it last year in in 17 and it was on the market like maybe like two days or something (laughs) so it it was sold like that yeah so I definitely know it's a lot more interest but definitely in that time of me growing up kind of sort of in that area I was like man Dexter is I was like the the one the one place I was like it's had some rough patches because the only McDonald's I've ever seen clothes was going down. <laughs> yeah, now I don't know right. if it had the right traffic for the intersection yeah, and everything. But it's but rough up there. That that commercial strip. I mean, it, it, between 
Davison and 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 Joy Road. I mean, it, it's pretty bad now. There's no question about it. So we, we got nowhere to go but up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's got potential, and so we're going to put uh, millions of dollars in there and redevelop that whole area. I can believe and that. it's coming. And uh, yeah, my favorite car wash from back in the day was ah, over there on Elmhurst, <laughs> Dexter Elmhurst. That's right. <laughs> so, and just a lot of different things. High school. What high school did you go to? I went to Cass. Uh, okay. The the neighborhood high school was Central. Central. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I figured I'd take the test and see if I could go to CAS because I knew even then that I wanted to be an automotive engineer. And so a lot hmm. of people don't know. I mean, I'm a, a mechanical engineer by, by, by trade. Uh-huh. Uh, and I always wanted to be an automotive engineer. And so I knew I could get the correct kinds of classes at CAS that I couldn't get at Central. So I took the test and managed to get in. And so uh, in 1962, I went down to CAS and graduated in the class of 65. Ain't that something? Yeah. So you went through, you, you sped through high school. Yeah, yo, Al, you know, <laughs> did, did my 10th, 11th, 12th grade, did it and got out of there. I got you. I uh, went on to University of Michigan after that. Okay. Now, what was Cass Tech like in the 60s, early well, 60s? Well, you know, we and we talk about that in, in, in the play, too. Now, that was my first taste of, uh, of politics, quite frankly, when I Ain't was there something? at Cass Tech. Um, <laughs> Uh, we the black folks were not a majority then. Uh, it was mm-hmm. still a majority uh, white school, and 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 of course the advantage and what we liked about Cass is that you know it drew from all over the city. Mm-hmm. So the advantage we had is is that you had friends uh, that lived everywhere. So I knew people that lived over on Mac and East Grand Boulevard and mm-hmm. down on the Lower East Side, but also on the West Side in the McKenzie area, etc. And so no matter where you went on the weekends to a party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you knew somebody, and somebody knew you, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a real advantage. And so that was a big advantage down the cast. But you know, it was a, a great experience. It was at that time one of the best high schools in the country. Uh, you got an unbelievable education there. Uh, it it still stands out in my mind that my the chemistry book and the math book that I had in my senior year at Cass when I got to the University of Michigan my freshman year, we were using the same book. Ain't that something? Uh, that's how strong that curriculum was back then. And so uh, it was a school we were proud to be of. As I got my first taste of politics. I ran for class president okay. in 1965 and uh, put my little campaign team together. And, uh-huh. and we were uh, hitting the, the study halls and going up and down the floors. And uh-huh. uh, we did the whole mock election piece. And we counted the votes. And it was a, a large uh, senior class. had about 1,000 people. Hmm. And... Um, I probably didn't politic quite the same way I should have, so I lost by 25 votes. Mm. Now, we always felt we, we kind of got hooked in that because when they were in the room counting the votes, every candidate had two people from their staff counting, and they only allowed me to have one. Mm. And so my campaign manager came out and said, Charlie, I, you know, I, I can't keep up with the votes. They're going too fast. I, everybody else has got two people counting. So I went to the assistant principal at that time, Mr. Kendall, who was not uh, one of the assistant principal known to really like black folks that much. And uh, he looked at me and said, nope, you got what you got. This is what Ain't we're doing. Up. And so I don't know whether we got hooked or not. What I know is everybody else had two people in checking the votes and I only mm-hmm. had one. We lost by 25 votes. Uh, everybody was a little upset. They wanted to go shut the school down and Ryan said, no, we're not gonna do that. We went and congratulated uh, the winner. Uh, and what happened was, you know, there's the science and arts curriculum at Cass. I was in Kimbio, but the science and arts curriculum was where all the, the, the brainiacs and the smart folk were. Mm-hmm. And they swept the whole ticket. Hmm. And I didn't campaign in the science and arts huh. uh, uh, study hall. And so that was probably one of the mistakes that, that I made. And so they swept all the offices and we congratulated them. And uh, 
we moved on. But that was my first taste of Detroit politics. Now, was it Cass Tech? Now let, let's talk a little bit about just the the other culture of it in, in classic Detroit culture. Yes. Of uh, I went to North. I graduated from Northwestern. So and actually the president of Northwestern alumni. So all those sixties right. Northwestern alumni is always Ooh. talking about what the old and old yeah, was like. Yeah, man. The original. And they still get together. Yeah, well, yeah. Talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. Every first Saturday, join us at Northwestern. There you go. <laughs> Ten AM. <laughs> so with it talking about that, I just know what the bus ride was like for me. Yes. If I chose to take the bus. What bus were you taking from Cass? Was it was well, it the Dexter? Well, you know it's what, funny. What I took that? the Dexter bus, so I went right by Northwestern every morning. Yeah. And yeah. then every afternoon. But you know, the, the Dexter bus came right by. Matter of fact, the bus stop was right there at Sturdivant. And Dexter, mm-hmm. and I'd catch that, and of course, you know, it would go down Dexter all the way to uh, the Boulevard and Grand River, make the left turn at the school, okay, all the way down the Cass uh, Avenue, and then down Cass. So uh, that's been the route for day. a minute. <laughs> oh, ain't no question. I caught the seven eighteen every morning. Now back then, the buses ran on time and like clockwork. So I caught the seven eighteen every morning. If you missed that, the seven thirty mm-hmm. was coming right behind it. You could catch that uh-huh. and still get to the eight o'clock class on time. Yeah, because the Cavs yeah. kids used to always be like the Northwestern kids. Ah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. We rode right by there every day, man. And and the other piece is that you know we rode by uh, Motown. Uh, every every morning, and of course, you know, we kind of took it for granted then. But you know, it, it was not unusual for you to ride by there and and, and see a Temptation or Ain't Miracles so. or Supremes, down about somebody stand out on the lawn, everybody clowning around, smoking Robinson. But we took that for granted. Hmm. But we passed that every day wow. and saw that going on there Ain't at, at so. uh, Motown Hitsville, USA. It's like it's like at, you. It's like there go Marvin Gaye. There it's you like go. I'm trying yeah, to get yeah, this girl's that, phone that, number. That's right. I could care yeah, less about talk Marvin about me later. <laughs> <laughs> What is your number? <laughs> Yeah, the old Dexter bus, man, which still runs and is mm. still there. And, yeah, the and, we're, and we're getting that to the point where we're much more timely and mm. uh, the buses are cleaner and the buses are running more regular now. Uh, so that's part of our resurgence. But, uh, yeah, rode that bus every day, man, for, for three years. And the Dexter could take you a lot of places, oh, too. Oh, man, yeah, because, you know, once it, it went, if you were going the other direction, I mean, it went all up to, you know, past Clemens, past this area over mm-hmm. here. Uh, and you could take it all the way to uh, UAD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. In the programming when you were a kid, what were some of the things you guys were doing as you talk about UAD? Because I've heard about like some of the summer programming at UAD if you were a kid. And, and then I've been hearing more about like Northwest Activity Center used to have like all this stuff for kids. Like what were you doing when you were a kid with the summertime? Well, in the summers, most of the time we were there, there in Russell Woods. Uh, my dad was the president of Russell Woods Association for 15 years. Wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a, still a few families, uh, Miss Norton and a couple of others that are still there when my dad was, was president because we're talking about mm. back in the 60s. But um he didn't like us playing a lot in the streets. He didn't think that we should be playing in the streets. His thing is, you got a big park down there, so take your behinds down to the park and which play. Made, which made playing football in the street uh, even yeah. more more well, more right, tempting. He said, "Don't do it." You know, <laughs> uh, go down to the Mercury and make a left turn, and we hit you. You know that kind of thing. Playing touch football, so we didn't do much in the streets, but we played uh, in the park, uh, and we played a lot of basketball. And, and I, I, you heard me mention uh, Saul Green earlier, who was my, my best friend. And he lived on Oakman between Santa Rosa and Monica. Mm-hmm. And his dad, Foots Green, was into sports all the time. Matter of fact, was on the early sports commission and, and, and those kinds of activities in Detroit a long, long time ago. And so he built a basketball court 
on their side because they had a double lot. Oh, and so, man. man, we that was every was, was day, it, all day. Was that like we uh, played? Was that like uh, as we? I always use this analogy, like because I remember playing basketball so much too. It's like you know you play in other people's backyard and they like keep changing out of bounds and it's like, hey man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday that was inbound. How's the car out of bounds today? You know, because you know bouncing the ball off of the house that was in it wasn't out that was that you still played it off the house <laughs> but we played for hours man shirts versus skins wow uh and uh usually three on three and and we played a lot and and you'd be surprised at uh, some of the guys that grew up that came out of that backyard that ended up being some pretty star players uh, uh after that i mean it was it was serious basketball because the word was spread after a while so everybody wanted to come, come over, over to that court and play in the greens court Oh. So we played there. I, 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 listen. And you were from Cass, so you may have brought people from the other side of yeah, town yeah, to come over there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and Mr. Green didn't play. I mean, he, you could come and play, mm-hmm. but you had to behave yourself. I mean, there wasn't any cursing, loud talking, no drinking, no knives and guns, that kind of stuff. You come to play basketball, and, and because of the way he did it, everybody respected that. Hmm. Uh, and so it was the place to come, and there was no messing around. And... Uh, um, we did that for a lot of years, and it, it was it was it was a great experience. And 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 the Green Boys could play. Saul and his his brother Force they played for McKenzie. Okay. Uh, they kind of had home court and, advantage. Though. Yeah, yeah. Well, no question about that. <laughs> and their younger brother Daryl, who has passed away now, was just an absolute phenom. He ended up going to Assumption over in Windsor, but uh, he scored sixty two points in a game one day. I mean, this wow. boy could do it. And so he was the little kid growing up. But he learned how to play ball in that side yard on those courts. Now, now it, it sometimes ends up being like that because it's like if you're young and you play against good older players, that's right. You you end you up tough. like cutting your teeth. Yeah. Where where like you really can ball and then you start playing with people your age and it's like I'm killing them, killing them, <laughs> killing them. Now now being from Cincinnati, yes. And and I generally ask like the Detroit questions. Like when I had Attorney Reed here, he was talking about his his brother and stuff, and I was like asking Kurt Jones questions for him. <laughs> but. Oscar Robinson, and I hear these Ooh. stories of Oscar Robinson. Yeah. Were you an Oscar Robinson fan? I was, man. The big O, and you're right. You know, he went to University of Cincinnati, uh, of course, and then played for the Cincinnati Royals, which was the mm-hmm. pro team there. Uh, my brother-in-law, my, my uh, oldest sister's um, uh, husband, uh, went to University of Cincinnati the same time he did. Now, he played football, okay, but uh, Oscar, of course, played basketball. But we talked about him all the time. But he, no question, was out. And it's still one of my idols. I mean, the big O, I mean, he was, you know, back then, he was 6'5", uh, and he was a guard. He was the, one of the first big guards to play, mm-hmm. uh, um, both college and professional basketball. And, and, you know, the big O invented the triple-double. He invented the mm-hmm. triple-double. He was scoring triple-doubles back in the 50s when they didn't call him that. Yeah. Uh, but he was always good for 25, 30 points, 12 rebounds, and 12, 15 assists. Always, every night. And uh-huh. he was smooth. He wasn't that fast or quick, but he was big for his size. And uh, came from Indianapolis, Indiana, and turned Cincinnati out, man. And, of course, turned the NBA out. And it's turned him to be one of the 50 greatest players ever to play the game. I mean, no. he was fabulous. So, yeah, we loved him in Cincinnati. The big O is the man. And, I, and I've heard these stories. Because, you know, basketball is the classic barbershop talk these days, <laughs> That's especially right. with, like, my barbershop's out on the NFL, like a lot of black barbershops, I assume. But yeah, yeah. We, we get these talks about, like, you know, this player in this era versus this player in that era. You know, it'll be some of the old heads talking That's like, right. well, you That's know, right. like Bob McAdoo could. It's like, man, Bob yeah, McAdoo is in the NBA right now, man. They'll be killing him. 
That's exactly but, right. But what was it like, like the athleticism then? Do you think some of those guys like the big O could hang with guys these days? Or like, was it like, because I know a lot of the rules have even changed in my time watching basketball. Right. Well, no question. I, I, I And you're right. You have to be careful with that whole, you know, goat business. Who was the greatest of all mm-hmm. time kind of thing. Because it does kind of relate to eras. But, but, but some guys and the talent that they have can transcend all that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the big O was one of those because, like I said, he, he wasn't that quick and wasn't that fast, but nobody, I, I never remember anybody blocking his shot. Wow. He had that shot, that jump shot that he put over the top of his head. Mm-hmm. And so I think he'd get 20 points on you no matter who you were <laughs> uh, because he, he knew how to back you down as a uh-huh. 6'5 guard. He could turn on you. He could take it. He had, had all the shots. Uh, he could assist. I mean, he was good. Now, all the players aren't like that. And so mm-hmm. you, you got to be careful to see if they could transcend okay. different areas uh, or, or eras. And so I don't know how far Michael Jordan could have gone back and still been as great as he is. Now, uh-huh. LeBron James, another question, because he's just a beast. And so yeah. he might be able to transcend all those areas. You know, you don't know. So, mm-hmm. But that's that's what creates the barbertop talk, because everybody's got an yes, idea it, it of who they think is, is best. But I'd put Oscar Robinson in just about any era, and I'd keep my money on him. Okay. I think he's going to get 20 points on you. I don't care who you are. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, now, playing then, as, uh, as I love the basketball talk, favorite sport. So, uh, what the, the street ball versus organized ball. Right. Was, was it a big difference in that era? Because that's where I think, like, nowadays guys can play a little bit more street ball in the organized ball, whereas then, I don't know if it was like that. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You know, I and I think it's still the same way. I mean, street ball has its own brand, and, and you're right. There's some guys that can just, you know, when they play street ball and just mm-hmm. tear it up, beat mm-hmm. everybody, beat anybody. You put them in an organized game, send them off to college, and they average three points a game. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it doesn't transcend. So I think it's the same issue with street ball versus, uh, you know, the professional ranks as it was all the time. There's some folks can transcend their talent and others can't. Um, is, so so the, the talent's different, their expertise is different, uh, but you know, street ball, street ball. Uh, you know, they talked about that out of New York. You know, when, when the guys played in the in the Rucker League, mm-hmm. and you know, had some guys up there, and all those guys, uh, Lou Alcindor and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all those guys, when they came out of there, they said, man, there's some guys in there that were just phenomenal, but they never could make it to the pros. But they felt that those guys were much better. It's just a, I think it's a mindset more than anything else. Uh, because, you know, athletic talent is athletic talent. Uh, and if you're able to, to coach that in the right way, you get a good coach, he can, he can take athletic talent and win anywhere. Okay, and as we talk about coaching and going anywhere, um, you were going to U of M at that time too, uh, mid-60s. This is like uh, before the rebellion. Uh, the 60s was a unique time in America. I was talking to my dad about this. A couple days ago when he was saying like even with today and the temperature and i'm like a lot of things were changing for the reality for most america because the the idea of americana and and buying into the american dream and everybody being able to get the white picket fence seemed to it was some things challenging this in that time in the 60s yep no question Um, those were those were turbulent times there's no question about it i mean you know the the the, the rebellions and the riots in the cities were beginning then. You know, mm-hmm. the Watts riot was in 65, 66, before we did our thing in 67. In Newark blew up. Yeah. Chicago blew up. Um, <clears throat> University of Michigan was a hotbed for activism. Uh, you know, you had some, some, some 
pretty wild white folks up there too. And that's uh, what that's what I was going to ask. And, and so when we got there, I mean, it, it, it was a predominantly white school. Unfortunately, today it is still that. Yes. Um, when we got there, uh, they had about forty thousand students. Uh, mm-hmm. We came in there. It was only three hundred and fifty African American students out of forty thousand. Hmm. So we were one tenth of one percent of that school. So when we went up there, I mean, it was pretty desolate. Uh, I went to engineering school, which of course was even worse in terms of its percentage, uh, and saw on our roommates, but but when I went to South Engineering, walking across the campus, I could walk across campus and go to class and come back for a week and never see another black person except wow. my roommate. Hmm. Uh, it was pretty desolate up there. Uh, it was pretty tough. We were isolated, and of course that forced us to be much more united, and so Kappas was hanging with Alphas and hanging with Omegas and the Deltas and AK. Everybody was together. There wasn't no splitting mm-hmm. then because there was so few of us. So the advantage of that was is that we didn't get off into our little areas. Everybody was in. So we had a good tight-knit groups for about four, three, four, five years during that period when we were coming up. Uh, U of M had a, a, what they called the Opportunity Award Scholarship Program where they were actively trying to recruit mm-hmm. more African-Americans. So as they brought more up, uh, we came up in 65, it was about 300 of it. 66, then they got about four or 500. So they would get a little bit more each year, and it got a little bit larger. Back then, as you know, that's when the Black Action Movement started. Joanne Watson was up there. She was a, one of the, the, oh, the yeah. activists of, of the Black Action Movement, Ron Thompson, uh, and a lot of folks up there. And, and so we set some goals, uh, and we set the goal of having 10% mm-hmm. of the population of that university, we said, should be African Americans. In 2018, we still ain't at 10%. And, and, and along that line, and, and that's another one of my godmothers and Mama Watson, and I've asked her about him, but with you in front of me, i got to ask this too. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of my, it's a tough read, um, but my friend told me to check it out. But Crises of the Negro Intellectual, Professor Howard Cruz, Harold mm-hmm. Cruz, mm-hmm. that was up there at mm-hmm. U of M. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have his class? Do you remember him on campus? I didn't because see I was I was in, in engineering, engineering and so we had our own thing you know we were we had South Engineering uh, West Engineering and then North Engineering where all the labs were now the folks that were in LSNA Literature Science and Arts and those were on the main campus and so they were exposed to him my roommate I think had a couple of his classes and so I went on to course to law school but I was kind of segregated from that and mm-hmm. so I got it from a secondary basis of listening to Saul and some of the other folks as they went to their classes. Uh, and so I didn't have the pleasure of having direct exposure to that. But um, he was in a minority up there. I mean, it was those were tough times up there, man. I mean, they didn't uh, they didn't tolerate uh, a lot of stuff up there. Uh, it was it was very difficult. A lot of people the transition from their respective high schools, even those of us that came from Cass, but those that came from other cities in Michigan and outside of that. Uh, shit, I think after the first semester, all of us was on probation. Mm. Uh, it, it was, um, those were tough times and we pulled out, uh, when I started in engineering and because of the opportunity awards program, we probably had about 25 or 30 of us mm-hmm. in the incoming class, uh, mm-hmm. out of about a couple hundred. Uh, and that's the largest they'd ever had. And that was in 1965. By the time we graduated in 1969, five of us walked across that wow. stage. Wow. Uh, me and Boudreaux and Larry Collins and Terry Banks from DC, man, it weren't a lot. So. It was, uh, those were tough times uh, academically. Now, it prepared us well for, for, for life and what we were gonna encounter after we got out of there, but the experience uh, 
was uh, was very difficult, uh, highly racial, obviously, uh, and night and day between there and 90 miles away uh, up in East Lansing. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of friends that from Detroit that went to, to Lansing, and it was just a different experience. Mm-hmm. And we could see it in the alumni activities that still go on today. I mean, their alumni activities, black alumni actions, are much more active than ours mm-hmm. are. And for a long time, we couldn't figure out why that was. How come they can get more people at their black alumni reunions than we can get. And we finally figured out that because we didn't have a good experience yeah. uh, when we were at, at University of oh, It may be opening some and so Yeah, and, and so yeah. coming back to celebrate and acknowledge that was just not something that enthused Everybody was just, I know I was, I was just glad to get out of there, get my yeah. degree and get the hell out of there. Uh-huh. Um, whereas it was a it was a big time party up at Michigan State, so we used to go up there a lot. Yes, uh, as, as many people have. Like, yeah, we had a lot of in friends school, out know? of school, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'd always tease them about that, say that uh-huh. was the party school. But uh, good folks, I sent my daughter up there. She went yeah. to Michigan State, so I sent yeah. a lot of money up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm uh, sure they appreciate you. For yeah, that. <laughs> no question about that. But it was a, those were hard times and interesting times because it was the '60s. Uh, and and that was a pretty raucous time in America in general, and, both black and white. And in that, as you talk about raucous time, black and white, another one of these talks with my dad. It's almost like I feel like I'm talking <laughs> with you and my dad in the room, but because um, he went to UC, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, you know, uh, just and you know, it's these snapshots that you just assume. And I was like, well, you know, you went to college, and he was like, you know, I easily could have been drafted too to go to Vietnam. And I was like, I thought if you went to college, that couldn't happen. And he was like, no. They were still drafting folks, man. You know, back then, you know, because it was the Vietnam War, so they, they were drafting everything and not necessarily just walking. I can remember going down to, because you did your physical then down at Fort Wayne. And I remember going down there because they got me once I lost my uh, uh, student deferment, my 2S. And, hell, it was guys down there on crutches, canes. They were passing, sending them through, because they needed everybody they could get uh, going over to that Vietnam War. It was a terrible time, man. And that's what I think when I think of that generation of of guys that were of age in the 60s. um, What was that like seeing some of, like, your brothers, cousins, uncles, uh, and really friends, like, you know, like your peers come back Oh, it was rough, man. You know, we, uh, you know, back then you had the draft board. And and it was almost like council districts. The draft board had various districts around the state. Uh, and you had somebody that was the head of your draft board. And, and our neighborhood, Russell Woods, was headed up by a lady named Ida Lee. I still remember her name because she knew us all personally. Because, see, once you got to be 18, you got Are from you high school. Yes, I'm telling you. So basically almost like when you felt out. Oh, she was tracking you. That, she uh, was tracking you. So that, uh, you graduated from 18, you had to register for the draft. Put your name in. Now, selective you, service was yeah, one of my go. Yeah, selective yeah, service. Yeah. Ida Lee headed up our draft board. Damn, she was scary. downtown, man. <laughs> that's scary. And she knew us Ooh. by name. And so Ooh. you had to register. And if you were going to college and you could prove you were in college, she'd give you a 2S with student deferment. I and mean, that was good until you graduated. And then, you know, 4F, they wouldn't draft you at all if you just had some serious health problems. 1Y was another category. Uh, and so we watched a lot of our friends in Russell Woods who didn't go to college, you know, Charlie Hood and some of these other guys uh, got drafted and went to Nam. Some of them came back. Some of them didn't. Uh, and and it, it was real back then. There's no question. And uh, when I graduated in 69, I graduated in December of 69. I think it was somewhere around December 11th. 
On December 15th, I had a letter from Ida Lee saying, your 2S is gone, you need to come see me. Uh, <laughs> they were not messing around then. Uh, and so I literally had the greetings letter. Now, I managed to, it, it, with the grace of God, get out of that, and that's another longer story, but uh, it was something else. Now, some people got work deferments, depending on where you went to work after college. Mm -hmm. Your corporation could apply and get a work deferment for you and everything, but she was trying her best to get you to 1A, which is you're out of here and taking the ship on your way wow. uh, over over to the Vietnam. They, they needed bodies, and, of course, you know, that was still the worst war we've been in in, in history. Uh, but it was tough times. So a lot of people left out of Russellwood. Some didn't come back. Some did. Hmm. And those that did weren't the same as they were when they left. And that's and that's like the pulse of like what my dad says, because that that conflict war, um, I don't know, crises. I, I'm not sure how it wants to be labeled. Changed a lot of the temperature of America. Yep. And definitely Black America. Moving forward. Uh, and, and with that moving forward and you being peers with some of these guys and then seeing your dad like working the, in the space of being able to find employment, represent who these guys are that are still going through. Like right now we have the label of PTSD. But back then, I don't even know if that was like uh, yeah, well, a label. It was, it was a legitimate like, label. They would call it they, like they, shell they, shocked or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, they were traumatized, but it was just called something different. Yeah. Because, but, you know, th you think about it, there's no way that you can go day in and day out. Dodging bullets, seeing your friends killed, seeing a guy's head get blown off next to you, or you blowing somebody's head off because that's just the name of the game in war, and to think that that's not going to have a, a long-term impact on you, that's just unrealistic. And that was day in, day out. And, mm -hmm. of course, that goes on in any war. I mean, if you're in Iran, Iraq, any of that over there now, it's the same thing. And so they come back absolutely traumatized and don't get the kind of support and wraparound services they should be getting from the Veterans Administration, which is one of the multitude of sins that Trump is doing now. But, you know, mm -hmm. we it, it, it's tragic what we, we ask these soldiers to go through and the kind of support that they get when they get back home is just not what it ought to be. So, War is not a good thing. So after college for you, being yes. that you definitely didn't end up there. Right, that's right. What was, it, what was working like and what was uh, setting up uh, where you're at, you definitely had a big shadow of your dad at this yes. point in time. and my brother. Oh, so and I, your brother. So I had okay. some shoes to fill, absolutely, because okay. Bill Beckham Jr. was uh, was no slouch either. Mm -hmm. uh, but we all came out of that, that, that same mold. But but as I mentioned earlier, I, mean, I always knew from the time I was a kid that I wanted to be an automotive engineer. I was just into cars. Uh, and so that's what took me to Cash Tech. That's what took me to U of M. That's what mm -hmm. got me my mechanical engineering degree with a specialty in automotive engineering. So I knew I was going to work in the automotive industry. I ended up picking General Motors because they were the biggest and the best as far as I knew. And so I was fortunate enough to get in there. And I started out uh, washing windows down at the GM building hey, uh, in hey, the summer. Getting in the dough. Yeah. Getting in the dough. There you go. And did that for a summer. Uh, and then my last summer before I graduated from U of M, I was able to get an internship at the GM Proving Grounds out in Milford. So that took me then right into, on graduation, uh, a leg up in going into General Motors. And I started at uh, Chevrolet Engineering at the GM Tech Center in Warren in January of 1970. And that's when my automotive engineering career started. And so uh, when I finished uh, all of my public service stuff, uh, I had 14 years seniority in with General Motors, which a lot of people mm. didn't know. But while I was doing that, um, 
of course, Coleman Young gets elected in 1973, mm -hmm. uh, first African-American mayor in Detroit, chose my brother to be his first chief of staff and deputy mayor. Mm -hmm. So when they started to need an African-American with a technical background and somebody they knew was going to be loyal to them, I fit that category. Ain't that something? So bingo, they picked me. And so my first assignment and first appointment was I was vice president of the Public Lighting Commission hmm. in the city of Detroit, and that was in uh, 1974. All right, now was it one working of those, ever since? <laughs> was it one of those things where it was like because it's your your older brother, it's like, hey, this is what you gonna do, or was it one of those things like, no, nah, this would be really cool? Like, what, well, what well, was we, it? It was a little bit of both of that, but but, <laughs> but but it was mostly this is what you're gonna do, this is what we need, and come on in here, and this is how you're gonna do it. But it was cool; it was a great experience, and I was able uh, to, in that particular position, still work at General Motors while I okay. did that. So it helped GM because this was their then civic commitment to the city okay. as a corporation and help the mayor because he's like okay i got you know gm's giving me some executives on loan um some of the jobs i then had however required me to leave gm so they would allow me to go on leave of absence hmm. and so for the next five to six years i went back and forth between gm and the city as the mayor's needs fluctuated and as General Motors needs fluctuated because I'd get to the city and I'd be working on something and they'd call and say, hey, we need you back over here. We got another mm. job for you as a promotion. Because my goal when I came out of college, Kyrie, and, and, and went to GM, my goal was to be the first black chief engineer. Wow. And they still don't have one uh -huh. uh, today, but that was my goal. And, uh -huh. and I got to gotta say that, that I was on track. They put me on a fast track. And I was on track to being there. And quite frankly, ahead of my schedule, uh, and then Coleman would pull me back and forth. And so a lot of people think, well, you know, you just, you know, feeding off of the city trough. No, no, no. I didn't ask for those jobs. I had a career. Yeah. Uh, over here. And your in brother Motors. was like, hey, you my, you my little brother. so I came yeah. over here and, yeah. and it's been a pleasure in yes. these 40 some odd years to serve Detroiters. And so I, I don't begrudge that. It's been an honor to do it. And mm -hmm. I've done it for six mayors now. Uh, but I had a career over there. Okay. And that was my plan. But after 1984 and my conviction on the Vista situation, General Motors gave me a call and said, well, Charlie, you know, we, you either got to resign or we're going to have to let you go. Cut you go. And now, so that, that ended my career at General Motors in August of 84. Now, in that, I like to, because I graduated from Walsh, and when I graduated, people like to talk about the fall of General Motors. Mm -hmm. And I like to try to put sometimes General Motors into perspective. Mm-hmm. General Motors, especially at that time, it was like Rome. Like, like I tell people, I I, I would sit and I would debate my professors in, in, in class at Walsh. Like, like they would be like, General Motors should have known this or General Motors should have known that. I was like, General Motors made like double the <laughs> amount of money this, and then like almost every corporation in America combined. Exactly it was like right. General Motors was so big. I was kind of telling this to General Motors to me, I say, was the Michael Jackson of business. So when, right. I, when Michael Jackson passed away and I was talking to my little sister, like I was like, when, when Ronald Reagan met Michael Jackson, it wasn't Michael Jackson meeting the president. <laughs> it was the president, the president meeting, meeting Michael Jackson. Jackson. <laughs> General Motors was so big oh, at one man. point in time. Well, back then, as you know, I mean, it was, in fact, the largest corporation in the world back yeah. then. Uh, yeah. It was a huge behemoth. I mean, it had you know, five automotive divisions, but it had other divisions too. I mean, it used to make appliances in the Frigidaire uh -huh. division. It made 
uh, uh, railroad locomotives and their Delco mm-hmm. Moraine. I mean, they made their own brakes, their own, you know, components and yeah. suspension systems and, you yeah. know, they did all kinds of stuff, man. They, 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 out of the tech center, they had a, the research laboratories. I mean, the first mechanical heart was invented at the research labs at General Motors Tech Center. I mean, it was a huge, huge so corporation. So as it was continuing to grow, and you were in there at that time, yeah. and I didn't notice because I, I think people look at it back at like you know people take these snapshots of history and just like surmise it, and people right now look at the surmise of like General Motors like it was just running rampant and people did not realize that that the shadow would come, you know like Rome everything has an ebb yeah, and flow, yeah, but exactly. nothing lasts. Did forever. you all realize that like General this is huge? Like oh, yeah. did you all recognize that? Oh yeah, you always knew that. As I say, I, I started it at, at, at Chevrolet. Uh, which, of course, was the largest of the five divisions. Mm-hmm. But we always knew that there were those other four divisions. Uh, and and quite frankly, the way the corporation was set up, most of the CEOs would facilitate competition mm. among those divisions. I mean, that's how big they were. I mean, Chevrolet was larger than most regular corporations. Yeah. Chevrolet was bigger than all of Ford Motor Company back that's then. What, that's and it was what just was a division. And so we knew yeah. that it was huge. Uh, and I worked at, at several divisions. I worked at, at, at Buick for a while. Uh, I had some engineering staff function jobs which got, which got me exposure to all five of the divisions. So I did work down at Cadillac in Detroit and Buick up in Flint and Oldsmobile in Lansing. Um, and so I got around quite a bit, uh, which was part of my being on the fast track. But it, it was clear to you that this was a huge corporation. There's no question uh-huh. about it. But it was it was the largest and at that time the best automotive corporation in the world, man. I mean, it had all the facilities, mm. the GM proving grounds in Milford. We had a proving grounds out in Phoenix, Arizona. We had a proving grounds in Denver, Colorado. Hmm. Um, you know, facilities all over the country. We had 26 assembly plants around the country. I had a job that, that, that got me into all of those at once. And so I've been to, to, to all of the 26 assembly plants around there. And so even if you just stood in one of the assembly plants and watched cars come off the line one every 55 seconds, it, it, it would put into perspective just how large this thing was. And, and the fact that you could put something together that has 2,500, 3,000 parts uh, and have it coming off the end of the line every 55 seconds and the guy gets in there and turns the key and it starts up and you can roll off, you're like, man, this is really something. So to me as an engineer and a young engineer, it was, it was an amazing experience. Uh, and to be a part of that um, is phenomenal. There's no question about were, it. Were, were some of like the were some of the Japanese car companies and was like AMC like pulling the chains of all you guys like like you be at like a bar and a guy from uh, American Motors be like so <laughs> <laughs> what will it take to <laughs> hey, right to pull you? Well, I didn't get much because in, in those years when I was there, you know, in the, in the 70s, um, those guys, you know, the 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 foreign car companies weren't as prevalent then mm-hmm. in, in, in Michigan. I mean, now, you know, there's as many of those around here in Detroit and some yeah. other places as there are um, the, the, the domestic Local. companies, yeah, yeah, but yeah. They, they were still kind of a novelty back then. Okay. Okay. And what about even just the, the locals like AMC and, and Ford and Chrysler? Were they, were they like uh, looking to poach on the GM well, talent? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, the Ford people were, I had a few people, a few friends that, that, that went to Ford. One of the guys that, that graduated with me, Larry Collins from uh, U of M, uh, he went to initially to Ford. So I knew some people over there. Um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Ford was not a slouch. Um, uh-huh. They just weren't as big as General Motors, but they mm-hmm. knew how to do some cars. And uh, so they were competitive. I mean, they mm-hmm. would hang in there. 
And so we'd have some friendly rivalries and, and, and those kinds of conversations. But GM was still it was the huge. godfather, man. It was, it yeah, was it huge. Was, GM was the godfather. It was it, huge. Largest corporation. I remember when, when, hmm. when the CEO, the chairman and the CEO finally got to the point where he made a million dollars. And that just astounded me. I remember having that conversation with my dad and saying, how could any one person be worth a million dollars? But it puts in perspective how much the company must be making what he's responsible for when then the board of directors would think that his compensation should, should be. be a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, and so it puts things in perspective. Uh, it was incredible, and I, and I tell you, the other experience I had, and the reason I would also question it, because I told you I washed windows down at the GM building, <laughs> and of course that's where the, you know, the executives were up on the 14th floor. Yeah. Now they wouldn't let all of us up there because that's you know, that's high cotton up there. But I got a few times to be up there, and I can remember being up there one time and being in the chairman's office. Uh, and what struck me most, we went in, first of all, to do the windows, and it was different doing windows up there. You couldn't do imagine. like you did down on the second floor. I can imagine. You had to have one guy hold one drape, another guy hold the other drape, Hilarious. while the third guy washed the window. Hey. And I remember doing that, but I remember sitting there, and the chairman was just shooting the shit with us hmm. and, and had nothing on his desk. And so that's when I asked my dad, how could this cat be worth a million dollars? I was in his office, and I'm telling you, wasn't much happening The proximity of it. That always sticks in my mind. Now, you know, as I've gotten to be an executive in some positions myself, I know there's times when you're not always just, you know, nose to the grindstone. And so Uh when the washers come in, maybe you do want to shoot the shit with them because you don't talk to cats like that on a regular basis when you're up there. And so he carried on the conversation, was a nice guy. Uh, uh, but he wasn't doing a lot of work. <laughs> now, now when we talk about that, I think as I grow with my organization and my experience, people skills becomes one of the most paramount things. No question. And people talk about your people skills and just understanding systems and people. Um, and I, I believe it was, you know, you know, moments in time in Detroit's history is people, especially the Coleman Young's election. It's every time I talk to somebody, it's like, you know, we were the main people that helped them get elected. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, and, and I actually kind of believe everybody's story because the conviction and the passion they say, but Coleman connected with so many groups of people where they all felt so materially invested in the success of Coleman Young. Yep. No question about it. He, he was the guy. I mean, he, he was gifted. He There was nobody like him and probably will not be anybody coming down the pike. And, and you're right. He had the gift of being able to, to talk to the cats that he hung out with on the corner on the east side. Uh-huh. And then he could turn around, as you know, he, he could then pick up the phone and be talking to the president and Jimmy Carter in, in mm-hmm. the next breath. Yeah. Or Henry Ford II, who he, were, they were good friends. Yes. Uh, Al Taubman, uh, Max Fisher. Uh, but then he could go in the barbershop and talk shit with him yeah. uh, on Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And so he had that ability and, and that gift that made you feel like when you were talking to him, you were just, you, you were just friend and one of the guys. Yeah. And uh, it was impossible to be around him uh, and not come away having learned something. Hmm. He was just a brilliant guy. High school graduate, graduated from Eastern High School, mm-hmm. uh, didn't go to college, but read everything he could get his hands on. Uh, he was always reading. And so he was just a, a, an intelligent, um, one-of-a-kind kind of guy. He, he, he was a quick learner. Uh, he could pick up stuff. I mean, when I was running the water and sewer department, some of that stuff was pretty technical. 
and I'd have to brief him for a press conference or something, he and I would just sit down for a couple of minutes and he'd pick it up next thing I know, he's out giving a speech on it. Wow. Uh, he had that kind of recall uh, and he was just uh, just an outstanding guy. There's no question. Nobody like him ever again. And, and when I think about him um, as, as the reverence so much of Detroit has, I also think it was a different era for his lieutenant. So, like, I think about you and Miss Ponders and, yep. and Ed Vaughn. Like, there you go. like oh, some man. of these people are, like, yeah. really had such a such a I don't even know what what's the right term like like a commitment mm-hmm. beyond self-interest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the success of what they do Dan Aldrich there you go for for, all, for all what them good it guys meant. all the people you're talking about good so guys. so like and when I look at a lot of like kind of in my era and I guess things change and different things like uh it's almost like okay self-interest first and the success of the project second yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. to be right. amongst our people like that has become a more like that's you know right. i want to make sure my family's good and i want to make sure that's good and then you know the success of this project but it seems as if you know in talking to them it was like look the success of this project is the paramount idea and we're all invested to that yep was that you think because of him or was it just a consciousness of the black community at the time? No, there's no question it started with him. It started right at the top because he was that kind of guy. And 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 he was a, a keen sense of judgment of character. And mm-hmm. so anybody that didn't have that same sense of we here to help the people, he just wouldn't have you around. Hmm. And and there are some folks that, that, that know today that, I mean, he, he kept them outside of the circle because they just weren't a part they of weren't that. cut that way they weren't cut that way and so he he set that tone and it started right at the top and that's why it was such a pleasure working for him because you knew what the deal was and you know you served at, at his pleasure as an appointee and it was that and it was a pleasure but you know he, he if you didn't toe the line i mean he would unappoint you uh mm. and 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 he was not shy about that but but he set that tone that's how we're going to do this here's how we do and here's why and he was such an overpowering presence of that that you you couldn't and wouldn't dare try to go crosswise with that and still be close to him. You just wasn't going to survive if you didn't. Mm. And so as a result, after a while, it just became part of the synergy of the of people that even happening. came and wanted to work for him. You, you, those other kind of folk never even tried to apply. So let's talk about that as you've been with now General Motors, uh, U of M, uh, you, you've seen your father with the UAW. Mm-hmm. How do you, what would you say if someone's looking to create a culture of whatever it may be around including people? Because even me, I had this question, like, how do you build, what, what have you seen be some of the most successful ways to build a culture of whatever you want to design? Well, see, and, and I think you hit it already. I mean, you, you did an excellent job of, of, of describing the, the, the selflessness of wanting to advance people or advance an environment for folk without looking out for yourself first hmm. uh, and, and just looking for the people. And so if you set that as the tone, if that's clear in terms of what you're doing, people gravitate to that. Those that buy into that same piece, those that don't buy into it, those will be the ones that, you know, they're going to be fighting you, pulling on your shirt, trying to pull you back. You know who they are. Uh, but 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 most people and most human beings like helping folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if that's your mantra, if that's what you're all about, uh, that's how you lead, 
then the rest just falls in place. And so that's the way I've always done it. But you're right. I learned that from my brother and from my father. And my father and Coleman were good friends because they were in the union together. Yes, yes. And so, you know, like minds think alike. And so all these guys were doing the same kind of stuff. And so, you know, the buddy battles and, 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 and the Mark Steps and the guys from the UAW, the union guys, man. I mean, mm-hmm. those guys back in the day, that's what the union did. But Walter Ruther set that tone at the UAW. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the UAW was just as much a civil rights organization as it was a union back in that day, mm-hmm. looking out for folks and the least of these and mm-hmm. challenging the system and making sure people could get a decent you know, wage and, and, and feed their family. And, you know, the UAW and, and, and unions created the middle class and it started right here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. You know, folks making good money, you know, good days pay for a good days work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you lead that way, you know, it becomes easy because that's what you do every day. But if you start looking out for for me mm-hmm. and yourself, you know, people read through that very quickly, and 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 it's very difficult to lead that way. Now, and you talk about Walter Ruther, and you may—I mean, you're way more connected to this than with through your father and his relationship mm-hmm. as the the roots of the union start like a lot of things in america mm-hmm. strong and racist hey, hey, it, no was, question, it started because it was like i do not want a black man working, <laughs> working over here next week <laughs> making the same kind of money i'm but walter ruther was one of to be like no 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 let's change this design that's right so now the intentionality of bringing on your father there after you seeing those skill sets what what was it like changing and shifting because there were other people like the Coleman Youngs and the Jimmy Boggs and other figures mm-hmm. just in union politics mm-hmm. but what what was that like witnessing that at a young age and seeing another cultural shift mm-hmm. in the thought process mm-hmm. well you know it, 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 it was enlightening and, and it did set the tone and, and you're right I mean obviously Walt Ruther saw that in my dad way down in Ohio when he was an international mm-hmm. rep and working down there and you know, Ruth would come down there and say, I like the way this guy works here. And so mm. said, I need him on my staff up in Detroit and pulled him up. Now, you know, everybody in the union didn't like Walter Ruth, even when he was the president. You know, and if you remember, in, in, in the late 50s, uh, somebody tried to assassinate Walter Ruth. Yeah. And they ain't sure whether it was another union guy yeah. or just some crackpot or who. And he mm. lived out uh, on the east side of Detroit at the time. So those were tough times, but, but, you know, the, the, the key to that kind of stuff is is consistent uh, and compassionate leadership. Mm-hmm. You keep doing it no matter who's chomping at you, pulling at you, pulling on you, uh, you're you going to win out at the end. And and, and Walter Ruth was at He was a tough son of a bitch. Uh, and he led differently than a Leonard Woodcock and Doug Fraser who came after him. The union was different after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ruth has set that tone with the UAW in terms of what it was all about. And that set the UAW apart from some of the other unions yeah. even the larger unions because yeah. they knew they were about the common man uh they were about equality justice it, no black white didn't make any difference everybody makes the same pay we fighting for everybody mm-hmm. uh and they set that tone and so my dad being a part of that but the reason he was a part of it because walt ruther saw in him that same kind of consistent compassionate leadership and people following him mm-hmm. uh and they weren't following everybody else and, and and that's how you get there. And so my brother adopted that 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 path. And so 
Uh, he made his mark here in Detroit, and then I had to try to fill both sets of shoes yeah. between my dad and my yeah. father, and I'm still trying to step in those shoes, and that. I'm coming to the end. But I'm proud of what they did uh, and, 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 and the marks that we've left on Detroit trying to help folks. Now, we talked about this, and this is such a great conversation. Um, I feel like you're going to be like, all right, I got to get out of here in a second. But <laughs> no, I'm I good, man. Gotta, I'm good. I'm good. I do got to ask good. your mom's side. As oh, yeah. you talk about just even the at that time and that awareness, here's someone else that I'm sure you had a relationship with because he was one of Coleman's best friends, too. And uh, his daughter, uh, Fred G. Simpson. And his daughter, Frida Sampson, always talks about Samson. Well, Samson. Yep, Reverend Sampson. Oh yeah. My my um, she's like, well, you know, my mother, with my dad, would sometimes be worried about, him, especially yeah. when he was leaving Louisville and, right. and the way he was moving and everything. Yeah. How was your mother's response to just the? Because it was very revolutionary the work that Walter P. Ruther was doing. Yeah, no so question. being the black guy working with him, it's like you know, it's, it's, it's like whoa, yeah, yeah, whoa, yeah. you know, like what was your mother's response to this? Was it any? Was there any? Um, you know, like the encouragement? Uh, was it the fear? Was it the like? What was her state of mind to to you know, be supportive of a man? Yeah, in that state? and and that, that's a good question. You know, and, and my mom was always supportive. My mother. Uh, was a little woman, man. She wasn't even five feet tall, mm. weighed less than 100 pounds, mm. um, quiet all the time, the opposite of my dad, who was 6'1", always over 200 pounds, big mm. guy, uh, but always very supportive. And she was one of these quiet, just supportive ladies that just took care of business at home. You go do what you do out mm -hmm. there in the world, and I got this back here. So we never missed a meal. We never missed being clothed. We never missed any of the stuff that had to happen around the house. Dinner every day, six o'clock, like clockwork. Um, in my dad's early union days in Ohio, hell, he wasn't even home during the week hmm. because he was traveling around Ohio doing the union piece, which is how, how Walter Ruther saw him. And, but so the weekends were his time to come home. Uh, and what she made sure of, I mean, his thing was, we go all eat together when I do get home. Mm -hmm. So every Saturday, Sunday, that's where we did our round table discussions. And she put all of that together. She was the base of all of that. And so she never said much, never talked much. I don't think I ever saw them argue more than twice the whole time I was around. Now, Are you serious? Now, dad would always tell us, he said, now, y'all think your mama's quiet. <laughs> Some of them nights when y'all sleep, <laughs> she's all over my ass, but y'all don't ever see that. And she never showed us that. Mm -hmm. But she was just unbelievable, and as a result, my dad would return that loyalty uh, to her for her doing that. But she was one of those, and and I'm not, that doesn't happen today. Women are a little different today in terms of how they show their support, and I'm all for it. Uh, I'm not suggesting that women even ought to be like that today, but mm -hmm. that worked for them then. My my mother never worked outside of the house. They were married mm -hmm. for almost 50 years. She never worked. Mm -hmm. my, never, my mother didn't get her driver's license until my dad died when she was 67. Wow. And and I think about some of these women like uh, Mrs. Sampson, uh, uh, Coretta, Coretta King, there you go. Um, Malik, uh, you know, Betty Shabazz. Yes. Uh, like, I think about, like, how strong some of these women were. Um, Mrs. Franklin, like, like what, what was the, like, how do you think that encouragement especially when you are like the i think the strong male figures 
in life facing so much at a time yep. to come home to somebody that yeah, is encouraging yeah, you. Yeah, no question. I mean, it, it, it takes uh, a special kind of woman, man. Um, I, you know, and, and I and I joke about it, but 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 it's not necessarily a joke. You know, I talk about all the years that I've put in, and you know, I've had three wives, mm-hmm. um, and, and because, and I had one of those ex-wives tell me that, that that Charlie, you know, part of the problem was that you you had four wives, and and the fourth wife was the city, hmm. and Detroit, and the politics that you were in. I, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, but you're right. When you see these guys, whether it's Jesse Jackson, Martin Luther King, Coleman Young, all of these guys, there's a strong woman back there, and it's an unusual kind of woman because I'm telling you, for those guys to be as strong as they are as black people in America and the things that they have to do and the sacrifices they make and what they have to take, that becomes number one. Mm-hmm. And that's contrary to what a woman wants in a relationship and, because what she and- wants is to be number one and quite frankly deserves that but when you have found yourself unfortunately with a guy who has this other yearning and other talent and ability that quite frankly has to be used Mm -hmm. somebody gonna have to sacrifice and it's usually that woman so it takes a special kind of woman um to be married to that and still be supportive and then take a a back seat that ain't easy and so so my three ex-wives, I, I love them to death because uh, they did support me through some times that, that they didn't have to, and I know they didn't want to, mm-hmm. uh, but they did, and so that helped me to get through some of those tough times. And so I know every one of them guys, uh, and, you know, Coleman was married three times. People didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had good, strong women when they stuck with him because you have to have that, uh, and it takes a special kind of African-American woman yeah. to support an African-American brother with the, the, the with, with the challenges that we have here in America. And that still exists today. I, I, I mean, I just even in, in my dating journey, I always get the, you know, people make time for what they make time for. And I think to myself, like, man, that's a very tough thing to think about because yeah. I've been making time for my, my mission in life yeah. for like 15 it's years. Hard, so it's like, yeah. I don't know, like I'm, I'm balancing that out. And that's I right. always think to like. It's hard. And see, people always say, Curry, you know, and, and the women will run that on you at some point. Well, you know. You do what you want to do. Well, that statement too. <laughs> and, and see, that's not necessarily the case because some of us have been put down here to do some things that that's what we made to do. Huh. God gave us that talent, that gift, and shame on us if we don't do it. And so it ain't about because I just want to do it. I mm-hmm. got to do it. Now, the problem is you got to find somebody else that understands that and accepts that, too. Because if they think you're just doing all this stuff out in the streets because that's what you want to do, then they're not going to support you the same way. Hmm. But if they understand that that's your mission mm-hmm. and then they buy into the mission, now you got something. Now, having said that, that does mean that usually that woman going to make some sacrifice. And that's why I say it takes a, a, a special woman to do that. And I, I ain't mad at those that say, well, I hear you, but I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I ain't I, buying into all that. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> you I can only imagine what it's like because mm. probably, and then sometimes I, I've been having more of a presence of mind, just even in my journey. And I mean, I'm, I'm doing way less, but like sometimes my day may start where like I'm doing this. Then I'll go to like an opening of like an That's event, right. like right. some some grand some grand business opening, and then some <laughs> some friends event. Like I can't like you know it's like you you grow and you end up in the zone, yep. but you may end up like just in what you were talking about. So like it was a point in time in your life where you are with 
at a, at a pivotal time in American history. Yes, sir. In like the Black Mayor movement. Yes, sir. With the Black Mayor of the blackest city of them all. Yes, sir. Been there. And, and then you're also shifting time to 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 work for the biggest corporation in the world. And then you still you still a, a a brother a son like you still have family stuff to to balance out because I know the black the black family is still the black family. Yeah, no, you know question. What I'm yeah, no question. You still got your cousin where it's like he ain't gonna never have a job. And so I know. Let me right. sort of give him a job. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> so you still doing that? And then it's like oh yeah, let me uh, oh yeah I, I do have her. Yeah, and she said, well, what about me? And so the the key I've found as I've gotten to be now in my seventies is. You, you, you got to figure out a way to, to, to give her enough time to show that you appreciate what she's doing. You're not going to ever be able to give her enough what she deserves, yeah. and what she deserves. But if you can hit enough times, uh, you can kind of make it. But again, it takes a, a, a special woman to do that. And, and if you find that, hold on to it, man. Don't give it up because it's, it's, it's rare. And, and uh, as we talk about that, your mom's background, where is she from? Well, let's say she was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. Uh, she was born in Laurel Holmes, too, <laughs> and uh, came from a big family. She had uh, uh, three brothers and three sisters, mm-hmm. and uh, her mom was a housewife also, mm-hmm. uh, my grandmother, and uh, she was just a dyed-in-wool Cincinnatian. And uh, when, when my dad had to come home and uh, tell us we was going to Detroit, it wasn't no happy home, man, because, you know, he's he's taking my mother out. and We don't know nothing about Detroit. He said, we're going to Detroit. We're like, where, Detroit? <laughs> and all my mother ever knew was Cincinnati. Cincinnati. My older sister's getting ready to get married, engaged, so, you know, she don't want to go because her man is still there in Cincinnati. My brother is in his senior year. And how you like, I'm moving yeah. in my senior year. My middle sister, she'd been going out to Walnut Hills. Mm-hmm. She didn't think there was another school in the world like Walnut Hills. So she uh-huh. figured, I'm not leaving. And I got all my little friends. I'm nine, 10 years old. I'm like, I can't leave my friends. And so yep. when my dad had to come home and say, well, we leaving. I mean, he literally had to be the strong-willed black man that he was and say, I hear all y'all, uh-huh. but pack up because we going. Mm. And, and and we left uh, and came to Detroit, but it was tough. Um, uh, he he was um, he was he was going against the grain, uh, and it reminds me of a story. And my staff, I told it yesterday as we were putting this together, and I got a little more time here so I can do it. I said, Charlie, you can't put that in the play; it takes too long. But I likened that decision that he made when Martin Luther King was a 26-year-old preacher in Montgomery, mm-hmm. and they were starting the Boys Boycott, and they went to a couple of meetings deciding how they were going to put together the the Birmingham Improvement Association Mm -hmm. and because he was talking so much back in the back somebody said you need to be the president of this and he's like damn so they appointed him as president him and 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 Shuttlesworth so they Mm -hmm. were walking home and Shuttlesworth said man you 26 he said how we we gonna deal with all these white people down here he said I ain't worried about these white people I don't know how I'm gonna go home and tell Coretta about the black woman yeah at home. He said, i got to figure out how i'm gonna go home and tell coretta and so that reminded me of that that, that uh-huh. my dad was facing that same thing that you know when walter Ruther told him you know i want you to keep like man what an opportunity mm-hmm. but now he got to figure out how he go home and i'm telling you we were a pretty sad family for for a little while mm-hmm. until we understood what that meant him getting that job mm-hmm. none of us did at the time now another thing as you as you mentioned uh uh, as you said, your your mother learned to drive when your father passed. Yes, and that's sixty seven. And in the grand scheme of just life, 
a lot of that stress of that work and the burdens that that are taken on with um you know uh especially with black men almost the 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 I don't I don't even know what it is. It's almost like an armor mm-hmm. or like Iron Man or something of mm-hmm. of dealing with different things, <laughs> you know, um that consciousness of what that's like too. Yep. Um do you think in that path of like you say doing what you feel that your your purpose in life is to do but still balancing out the the self-care of it in retrospect as you look at some of the moves and the stress that your dad was dealing with Mm -hmm. if approached differently do you think he would have done some of those some of those moves differently uh no question about that i mean you know life is what it is and so you know you do certain things and you're you're you do them because you think they're the right thing to do at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're faced with a different set of circumstances, you probably do some things different. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's the crux of the title of my one-man show. And, and I say, you know, that sometimes in life, you know, you do stuff and you, you look back on you figure, why in the world did I do that? And what was I thinking? And, yeah. you know, this was a terrible result here. And the only thing you can come up with that keeps you from going insane is that you have to tell yourself, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Based on the evidence that was presented, it was the best. So that's the title of my play, see, because I done done a bunch of that, you know, in my Uh 70-some years. But, man, I don't know why I did that decision. Like when I threw the FBI out of my office when they was coming in (laughs) and doing the Vista investigation, I threw their asses out. Well... That probably wasn't the best thing to do, uh-huh. but it seemed like a good idea to hey, time. Hey, <laughs> hey. I've seen, I've seen and, a many of people deal with the fence oh, that man, same way. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, you know, so things would be different. Everybody, if you had a do-over or a mulligan for those that play golf, uh, yeah, you'd hit the shot differently. You know, when you get mm-hmm. a mulligan, you know, you you taking the ball and putting it back in the spot you want it to be, rather than the spot that it fell in. See. Uh-huh. Uh, but we don't get do-overs in life, so so you do the best you can heading through, uh, and and w- when you look back, hopefully you you made more good turns than bad. Okay, now uh, in that good turns than bad, growing your family, you mentioned your daughter. Yes. Uh, how has your family grown? And then what was that like uh, coming stepping into with everything already on your plate? Yes. Being a father too. Oh man, it was wild. See, I I, I wasn't just a father; I was a single father. Mm. Uh, I raised my daughter uh, for a good portion uh, of her life, particularly through her her uh, formative years, uh, best years of my life. Hmm. Uh, now, I don't know how the hell I did it and how I found the time <laughs> because, you know, I was then also still trying to make my mark in Detroit. Uh-huh. But, you know, that was my daughter. I only had one child. Mm. Uh, and so I was going to give it my all. And so I did it. But as a result, we were unbelievably close. We still are today. Uh-huh. Uh, and, 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 what it did for me is two things. It made me close to my daughter, but also gave me more appreciation to all these single mothers out here. Hmm. Yeah, that shit is hard, man. And, and I raised her through the teen years, you know. Oh, I can uh, where, whereas Bill Cosby they say the they, kids turn teenagers, they go crazy. They just go crazy, you yeah. know. Yep. Uh, yep. And you have to hang in there. And so I was able to do that. I was fortunate. Uh, it, it was a circumstance that, that, that allowed it to happen. Uh, but but it was tough, and and you know I I had my own business then mm-hmm. uh, through most of that time, but I was able to be successful in that. 
uh, and then there was a period of time when I went on my my uh, government sponsored vacation. Uh, I was yes. still her father. That is that. That's what and, we call yeah, the urban yeah. vacation. <laughs> and and she survived that, and yeah. we survived that, and we talk about it. And I'm gonna talk about it in the play uh, a little bit, but it it was good. And so she's now. Uh, a grown-ass woman, as they say, mm-hmm. raising her own child now uh-huh. as a single parent down in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I'm proud of them. They're just doing great down there. She's got her own business. Uh, my granddaughter's uh, in a sophomore in high school down there, uh-huh. and they're turning it out down there, so I'm so, proud of them, man. Yeah, and I, I know, like, even looking at my dad, being a grandparent is oh, a lot. Oh, man. It's like, it's like you get all the fun of uh, uh, what yeah. the good side of parenting is with I the, tell like, hey, everybody. I tell everybody, <laughs> grandparenting is much better than parenting. <laughs> Much better. Oh my God, man! It's the upside. I, I love my granddaughter. Yeah, you know because you know everybody just they you love your grandfather. You know no matter nobody what to do your grandparents. You know, you, they can do no wrong. Uh, they love you all the time. And see, that ain't always the case when you're a parent because sometimes they <laughs> hate your ass. You know? I know. It's, like, it's like coming in here talking this common yeah, sense. Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to hear this. That's what right. do you mean clean my room? <laughs> that's right. Man. Rooms don't need to be cleaned in 2018. Ooh, man, yeah. <laughs> Grandparenting is much better than parenting. No doubt about it. So, um, and, and then in all of this stuff, in the journey, um, as you've had, like, uh, uh, I'm guessing, with family, friends, and associates, you pro- you have a lot of different social circles. So, yes. like, do you um, do you have, like, close friends for, like, almost everything? Because even in engineering, you know, <laughs> so it's like engineering, politics, sports, Life, yep, Cincinnati. Yep. Like, are are you hanging out with like different people, talking to everything? Like, well, you know, you know that that whole friends thing is tricky, Carrie. You know, and I, I'm blessed though. I've got some a small circle, and and, and you know, when you start talking about very good and best friends, uh, that circle ain't gonna be large because yeah. there's no such thing. But but my tight circle of very good best friends, I, I am so fortunate. First of all, all of them have been my friends for at least 50 years or more. Ain't that something? Which is rare. Yeah. Starting with my good friend Saul Green, who we go 60 years, getting ready to go mm. on 61. I mean, we were safety wow. patrol boys at Winterhalter together. Oh, yeah, that's back in the day. Um, and I'm so day. proud of this brother. I mean, you know, he's been the U.S. attorney. He's been the deputy mayor. He's mm-hmm. been, you know, air council for hood. I mean, he's doing it. And plus, we mm-hmm. just, we just guys, we boys. But you know, I got you know Tom Goss mm-hmm. and his wife. I mean, Tom was the athletic director, University of Michigan, largest athletic program mm-hmm. in the world. His, his wife Carol Goss uh, w- was president of the Skillman Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sydney Ribot, who grew up with us over on on, mm-hmm. on the west side, went to McKenzie. Uh, was president uh, out in the Cal State system and was president of Bowling Green University and then was president of Howard. Wow. Uh, personal friend. We grew up together. Ron Thompson, who grew up on Oakman mm-hmm. with us, and, and he goes back a- almost 60 years. Uh, he's on the board of directors of Chrysler. Hmm. Uh, his wife, Cynthia, it, it, it was chairman of the board of Boy Scouts and, 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 and girls. And so they're all my close personal friends. They are very successful they've raised kids and and we're close and so i feel fortunate man to have those kinds of friendships we still get together now we got a group called they're all part of that group called brothers who cook and we got to get together and cook food for everybody Mm -hmm. but after 50 60 years we're still doing that Hmm. uh and so i'm real fortunate because i tell you new friends make me nervous i don't blame Uh, you (laughs) you know well especially being a person that uh has what uh what many can label as 
as access to things that most people want because often it's not even it and and this is what's so weird i think often it's not really like a person wants to be you as much as they want what their perceived benefits of what you got that's right so it's like i don't necessarily want the burden of all the stuff you got to do that's right but i i I don't want to uh you know i don't want to be lebron james training in the off season (laughs) (laughs) for the lebron james check (laughs) that's right (laughs) after the game and so when you got folks that go back that far i mean you know saul's wife uh you know whom he married you know i met her the same time he met her um uh diane i mean she's been a a, a, a counselor at, at u of m dearborn for 40 some odd years and has mm. mentored all kinds of kids i mean so i can call them at any time yeah. any place we can get together anytime and it's just it's cool and so i'm blessed to have that that kind of friendship so i got a good enough circle uh that i don't have to go looking for for that for kind of support on the friendship like, voice and mm. everything they do they're successful at and i ain't got to ask them for anything and they don't ask me for anything it's that kind of a deal and so it's great man and so you start talking about 40 50 60 years that that's significant that's the good part of of mm-hmm. my life um uh, now you know i got a lot of good friends too and i and i had two sexy i had a career at gm so i've got some long-term General Motors friends too, mm-hmm. guys that we started and toiled in the vineyards together. Because mm-hmm. uh, as I said, I wanted to be the first black chief, but I was one of the first engineers to be hired at General Motors. Mm-hmm. Now there were a couple of guys that were already there. Odell Johnson came out of Purdue University. Uh, 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 um, Bill Newell was out of North Carolina ENT, and these guys were there a year or so before me, but they yeah. were black guys that I looked up to, and we became, mm-hmm. we're still friends today. Well, that goes back to 1970, so, you know, shit, that was 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, that, that And so I've got them as a group of friends also. So I feel fortunate and blessed, man, with, with my, my friendships. Now, now, do you think that with these friendships, it's one of those things like, you know, all these old adages, and it's almost one for everything, but the birds of a feather flock together. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's the the people that think like you that kind of have the same value systems that have that same work ethic just end up like associating with you more and or is it just one of those things where that era kind of produced where you guys were headed well I, I you know i think it was a little bit of both but but there's no question that's the case i mean you look at saul and i uh again in russell woods uh you know my dad being in the union uh, and, and the kind of strong-willed, strong black man, father kind of figure that he was. Well, Foots Green, who, who we called Saul's dad, who was like a dad to me too, same kind of guy. Mm-hmm. You know, strong-willed, ran yeah, his house like a ring of that. Especially if you couldn't cuss playing basketball. Yeah, <laughs> you know, ran his household, ran what happened in the yard, mm-hmm. uh, started up his own business. I mean, the Michigan Barber School is one of the first black businesses in Detroit. It's certainly the only black barber school. You can't go to a barber anywhere in Detroit that they didn't spend some time yeah. at the Michigan Barber School or they probably got their certificate from there. So he's been creating careers for black people in Detroit for 60 years. And so mm-hmm. he's that kind of guy. And so for Saul and I to then gravitate, it was a natural, you know, because we come out of the same environment. You know, Tom Goss, even though he was from, from Nashville, we didn't meet him until we went to the University of Michigan. You could tell the kind of family he came from, same kind of family ron thompson and lurie thompson who lived on oakman mm-hmm. uh mr thompson was owner of toll house cleaning he was the same kind of way owned his own business mm-hmm. hired black folk in the community you know stand up in the community you know his wife was a school teacher i mean so we had all of that in common mm-hmm. as you come in so ain't no question birds of a feather 
flock together because a lot of people grew up in Russell Woods and we didn't necessarily become that level of friends. Yeah, but they were cut different. different. Yeah. Cut different. Not necessarily better or worse, but, but just, just different. different. Now, and when you talk about cut different and, you, and you're mentioning a lot of things that, uh, that black people had access to then, and, and there's been a lot of debates, especially with my generation. We talk about, well, we should have did this and we should have did that. Kind of <laughs> the, the premise for crises of the Negro intellectual. Right, right, but, right, um, right, right, Do Do you often, because I always wonder, like, like on the flip side, like, I wonder, like, are people in their 70s sitting around having these discussions like, these young people got access to this, <laughs> this, and this? And <laughs> like, so with that, mm -hmm. do you believe if given more access um, it, of today, some of those people that were running like the Foots Greens, the some of the the stories of as you talk about Russell Woods, some of the stories that I hear because you know you hear all these street stories mm -hmm. like it's like you know all the main numbers people used to live on Broad <laughs> Street back that's in the right, day. That's right, that's right. There was a few of them in there too. That's right. Over on Fullerton, there was a couple. And yeah, like, they paid for all the businesses around. <laughs> like you know, you hear all the. It's like you always hear these street tales. <laughs> that's what gets told most often. Uh, yeah. But do you think that some of these people would, with with more exposure and more access that like even my generation has, would they be moving differently, or would they kind of still stay in those same circles? No, I I think things would certainly have been different. I mean, you know, I look back at the obstacles that, you know, the 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 Bill Beckham seniors and the Foots Greens and 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 the Coleman Youngs and all those folks had to face, and you look at what they accomplished. Uh, having to face that and, and and the meager resources sometimes they had to rely on and they still did what they did and you figure wow what if they didn't have those obstacles mm -hmm. they, they would have been different and bigger even, even that may be hard to imagine and you know my dad used to always tell me i mean we were growing up i mean he would say i he wanted to be the president of the united states we're like damn dad come on president of the united states uh. but that's what he thought he thought that he was smart enough to do that and he felt that and so that he instilled that in me well, I know Foots Green would probably talk that way in his household too, and 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 Coleman would talk about that, and 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 a lot of the people that we grew up with, but but there were always these obstacles. So you you always wonder how far you could go if you didn't have, you know, the obstacles against you. I, I my goal was to be the chief engineer. I probably wouldn't have gotten there, GM. But you know, if you'd taken away some of them obstacles, I would have been that. Because when I looked at the ones that were the chief engineers at GM, shit, I was smarter than most of them mm. cats. Mm. Um, you know, but but sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's the way the plan was laid out and, and 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 the will that you have to do certain things. But there's no question if the world was different, the end result would be different. Mm. How different? Who knows? But, but, but one thing for sure: if you're constantly striving to do your thing and your mission, you know, it, we, my thing is ain't got nothing coming. I have no regrets. Um, I, I'm gonna talk about my life uh, in a couple of weeks and, and, and the trails that that I've been down for for 71 years. I don't regret none of them, you uh -huh. know, because everything I did seemed like a good idea at the time, and it was the best yeah. I could do. Uh, and I was applying what my dad and everybody around me and growing up under Foots Green and in Russell Woods and around powerful, strong black men. It's what I learned and what Coleman Young. And so I think they'll look down and be proud of what me and my friends have done. Wow. Yeah. And and when you talk about that and, and with access, as I love Detroit's black history. One of the stories where I like I align like the world of 
of to my my mind like lieutenants in city government and your story i always think like before you was conrad mallet senior mm-hmm. and i hear these stories of conrad mallet senior mm-hmm. specifically from a couple different people mm-hmm. one of uh another one of, and then sometimes i think about me and i was like man you know when people always say like you know you know all these people i feel like man some of the greatest people i've known have passed on but yep. some of the stories i would hear and Dan Aldridge knows so much. He was telling yeah, me some of the stories. Yeah, <laughs> but the original stories came from Judge Claudia Morkel. Yes. And she would tell me these stories about him because one of Conrad Mallet Jr.'s son, Mayo, yes. is like one of my best friends. Is that right? Yep. Oh, man. So, um, so he was like, you know, uh, <laughs> so as I was, he was like, you know, your friend's grandfather used to. It, you know, Judge Morkum, very graceful. But she'd be like, you know, your friend's grandfather was. A black dude was doing all of this back yeah, in the. Yeah, he was a bad dude. He was always, to me, very scholarly, you know. And of course, I think he had a PhD at least. But a lot of people don't know. He, he ran the Department of Transportation for a while under Coleman. People don't know that. He was the DDOT director mm. at one point in time. Um, brilliant guy, though. Just an absolute brilliant guy. And I always just. He always carried himself, you know, he was tall and he was proud mm-hmm. and, and talked appropriate and proper and shit, man. He was just a great guy and certainly goes down as one of the, the, the legends in Detroit. And so he got in, Coleman brought him in, mm-hmm. uh, had him, and he did a good job of running DDOT. And hell, he didn't know nothing about buses, but, but he knew how to manage people yeah. and to get shit done. And, uh, you know, so Conrad gets his drive from, from, from his dad. But he was a great guy, man. There's no question about it. Because I, I, I hear so many stories about, like, the administrations and what he was facing and being one of those people that worked mm-hmm. in different mayoral administrations. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Understanding systems. Yep. Understanding people. How to connect to different neighborhoods. I'm yeah. like, man, how do, you, how do you figure this out? And then it's like, and then I look at your story and think the same thing. Like, <laughs> how do you know all these people and systems? Like, how yeah, do you yeah. get the productivity? And I ran somewhere. 10, 12 departments, you know, so, that's, um, you know, it's, um, but, but that was my gift and my talent. Uh, and so I knew that my forte was able to run and manage large systems and organizations. That, that was my, whether it's designing cars at General Motors uh-huh. uh, or whether it's running parks and recreation in the city of Detroit. And so I've been, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to do all of that, man, and it's been a good run. And I can imagine you, like I talk, you know, sometimes I I, I, I trip off of sometimes when young dudes come up to me and talk about stuff. But you're probably always like, you're at the grocery store and people are like, hey, man, you were the first person to. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, it was kind of funny. I went to a grocery store last week, you know, after the Chronicle did that great story on me. And I, yes, I, I yes. thanked Hiram Jackson for that because uh-huh. he. He, he did the whole page, and I don't know where the hell he found that full-length picture of me, but <laughs> it was a great piece. It was well done, and uh, so I'm going to buy a couple of the papers. So I go up to yeah. the local supermarket, <laughs> and I grab a couple of papers, and I'm putting them through, and, and the young brother at the cash register, he looked, and he said, that's you in it. Hilarious. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's me. He said, shit, you the man. He called the owner of the store. We said, man, we got a celebrity over here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked at me. He said, you know, sometimes you got to tell these people who's who around here. I said, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Hilarious. So, it's a funny story, man. But he was, uh, I come in that store all the time. But he he, he looked at that and he looked because it was a small picture on the front yes. advertising us. He said, man, that's you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like now you got, now you have uh, preferred access. Yeah. <laughs> you go. No, I still got to pay the same thing. My, <laughs> my baloney, I've been paying over there. You know, <laughs> like, hey, you that will not get this. Wing ding. 
Yeah. You will not get this gum for free today, <laughs> sir. <right. laughs> so now that that wraps up everything, uh, and now I have my classic Detroit is different questions. Yes, but I do want you to come back. We we got any time, man. Any this has been fun, man. I uh, yeah, I yeah. do this stuff all the time. I anytime, just okay. And now I, that I'm going to retire for September 1st, I got a little more time. We, we, may need to, we may need to talk about the Charlie Beckham podcast on Detroit is different. You know, before we got started here, and I know we got to end this up, I kind of text my, my marketer. Who, uh, matter of fact, she said to tell you hello. It's Dana Harvey. Oh, tell her what up. What so up? So she said, tell him. I said, I said, I'm getting ready to do this podcast. Because they didn't know I was going to do this. Uh, hilarious. And I said, I'm over here now getting ready to do it. She's like, what? This is hilarious. <laughs> we tell will, him we I said hello. Uh, yeah. And, and if so we get fine. you in the mix, because that was something Helen said, too. As Helen loved my aunt. Yes. Um, love her to death. She was like, you need to ask him if he's interested. She's graceful, too. Yes, like all these women, like my mama, just graceful, uh, uh, um, yeah. but still know how to how to yeah, get things right. going. That's we will right. definitely have her in the mix on, on the production because she even more so than me. She'll say, all right, now, Kari, we're going to rewrite this <laughs> yeah, and right. edit. <laughs> I'm like, they know what I meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't say this. You know? <laughs> they know what I meant. They know what I meant. <laughs> Well, my hardiest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but um, these classic questions, and I know this will be one. And yes, I, it, actually, what's so funny is, other than the middle question, I wanted to ask almost because you hit everything mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. So I know this will be a colorful answer. All right. Detroit is different classic question. First, what was your very first car? The year, make, and model, and what year did you get it? 1966 Corvair. It was green, and I got it in the summer of 1966. Wow. Loved that car. Okay, where was the first place you went when you got it? I was dating a lady that lived on the corner of Leslie and Homer, so I went around to her house. Ain't that something? Now, did she, know, did she know you got the car? Did you yeah, surprise no, yeah, she knew it because I'd been talking about Corvette all the time. <laughs> So she knew. So when I pulled up, she was like, "That Negro got that car." <laughs> yeah, the the first a uh, guy's first pickup of that first girl is oh, a, man, it's man. a whole other experience. It's like and you, she you and set I your had car been, out, right? Yeah, she and I had been going together for three, four years before then. So she taking knew. the bus. <laughs> yeah, shit, the bus, man. The bus date is a tough. Ooh, the bus date is a tough date because you look at every other guy with a car. <laughs> and that, that's right. Like, oh, he's about to get my girl. That's right. That's right. He's about to get my girl. That's right. That car cost me uh, $2,000. I paid $63 a month to GMAC mm. in 1966. Ain't, ain't that something. <laughs> now, what, what did your dad say when you got that? Because that's the other Well, he helped me get it. So, okay, you so know, he, he was supportive. Yeah, yeah he was supportive, and uh, I was a pretty responsible kid back then, so he didn't he didn't mind doing that. But, okay. Uh, he, so he was very supportive. Okay. I think he probably co-signed for it. He was like, you better keep your job. Yeah, that's the, right. The dad, the dad conversation is like, you better keep your job. That's right. I'm not about to end up. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy question. You you got to have something harder than that, man. That's easy. Like riding by your friends at the bus stop. Like, yeah, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, so I'm going into my, that was at the end of my freshman year at University of Michigan, and a lot of people didn't have cars up there. None of us did first mm. year. And so I was one of the first ones to have a car oh, on so campus. You, so I went back sophomore year. So I was, yeah. you know, the man, you know, because yeah, yeah, I had were, a car. You were you taking know? people everywhere. Yes. It was yes. like, we don't want to go to the pizza place on campus no more. That's right. You want to go to Ypsilanti. Charlie's car. That's right. <laughs> All right. Um, next question. If 
you're the DJ at the end of the Detroit fireworks. Mm. And you get to, you're, you're at Woodward in Jefferson. Mm-hmm. You get to play three songs. What three songs are you playing? Wow. At the end of the fireworks. Yep. The grand finale just went off. And you can be, like I always tell people with this question, mm-hmm. you can be one of those DJs that play what you want, or you could try to play to the crowd. It's right. all up to you. Well, I'd, I'd play what I want, but I'd try to play stuff that when I played it, everybody, and it's mostly Detroiters that come down to that would say and would recognize it. And so I would play My Girl, The Temptations. Okay. I would play... Papa was a Rolling Stone, Temptations. Temptations. And then I'd play Hello Detroit by Sammy Davis Jr. Ain't that something? <laughs> okay, in, the, in that order? Yes. Okay. Yes, because I'd want them, because, you know, when you listen to the Hello Detroit, Sammy Davis Jr., by the way, that's going to be the song we lead in on my play. I like it. Um, but when you play that, uh, it's Sammy, and he does such a good job on it. Everybody recognizes it, and it's upbeat. Mm-hmm. And so I want people leaving out of there being upbeat mm. but you start out with my girl because everybody knows that around the world yep. as a temptation detroit song mm-hmm. so you start out with that get people feeling kind of yeah my uh-huh. girl my girl you're feeling good throw in a little rolling stone so people can get <laughs> and then you send them home with hello detroit okay all right and the last question <laughs> and you i'll be surprised because you obviously somebody you work for the general answer to this, but right. if you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Coleman Young. Yeah, that's the most. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we most. got a lot of stuff named after him. I mean, you already yes. got the Coleman Young Municipal Center and uh-huh. Young Recreation Center and a whole lot of stuff, but he's the man. Mm. He, he he laid the foundation for what Detroit is today, and you gotta you gotta pay homage to that. Hmm. Okay, now I gotta ask. This is a, a off. The book question all right, all right. on it so <laughs> because local as i always say like some of the confusion with local politics mm-hmm. and i hear this from my mom mm-hmm. uh graduated central and she tells me that there used to be a class in municipal government when she was in high school yeah civics it was called civics civics class it was a local civics you had class. to take civics and it had a it had a textbook for local yes. civics and everything yes and uh the only person in the world of like kind of in the Coleman young story too another mm-hmm. one of my big homies in dolores bennett rest in peace oh she was man. the one person that Loved gave her. me anything in the local city everything i've learned about local politics has been sort of hearsay like mm-hmm. just the clear ambition and really even when you learn about anything in the government mm-hmm. uh even up to the college unless you go deeper into it they teach you the constitution and the three branches but it's nothing really specific into right. like okay oh, this is the function detail. of what county does that's right this is what state does that's right this is what the city does yeah. i remember i was sitting in uh, one of the mayor kilpatrick talks and in in one of those things like orator like mm-hmm. mayor kilpatrick would be great with stuff he was, was like no you question. know some of this stuff is is city roads is state roads and yeah. it's county roads yeah but when stuff goes wrong y'all just look at you it look like at it's the a city, city yeah. thing. <laughs> that's right but it's, it's a lot of <laughs> and i'm like yeah i guess you, i guess you gotta understand this stuff yep. and he's like sometimes a city road can stop in the middle of the street and then that's it turns right. over to a county road that's right or a state road he's right and do the what's happening we gotta you know and i was like okay all right i i understand that and i'm thinking to myself like how do you even find out like the functionality of what it is because there's some people that you know can end up in office for forever and people are like what does this person supposed <laughs> they to do ain't got a place? clue that's right <laughs> you know so if a civics a local civics book 
is needed or like a local civics class because mm-hmm. so many people are just lost to like mm-hmm. the combination of you know city county state and state yep and feds and feds and then even with city council because this is such a a, 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 a very executive led municipal government because every year I hear people well now every year somebody running for city council and then I hear all these people running for city council saying they're going to do this and that and I'm yeah, like and they can't as do a city none council person really you can't just so supposed to vote on a budget can't <laughs> do none of that <laughs> and then it's like people I respect and I pull them to the side and say like you realize when you get in office yeah you can't do none you really need to learn how to budget <laughs> learn what the when the budget happens and, and how write that, ordinances their primary responsibility yeah. is to write ordinances which is the constitution that runs the city they don't run it they they do ordinances and pass ordinances now yeah they ultimately pass the budget but that's the only executive thing they do yeah. the executive branch does almost everything makes in the city stuff happen so being that it's such a lost lost information how do you feel the consciousness and the awareness can be raised because that local civics class doesn't exist and it hasn't existed no, it in years. It doesn't. Well, I, you know, uh, again, it, it, it was in the Detroit Public Schools. I think you got to go back to mm-hmm. DPS. It's called DPS CD now, but you got to go back to there and to that curriculum and put it back into the curriculum. It's just like they're now trying to put the arts and more cultural things back into uh-huh. the curriculum in the schools. They took them out because of money. Yeah. So I say put there should be a civics class a put back in that curriculum too because that's where it was mm-hmm. and then you reach every kid that comes up well you know hell we got 50,000 uh students in dps we got we got close to 200,000 kids 18 mm-hmm. and below they, they need to see that and hear that and see that again so just like we're putting art music etc back in the classrooms and in the curriculum put civics back in there too because well, it just got taken out for one reason or another some years ago well, I definitely think as that I, I like I like what you said, and I've been talking it too much. The way I started Detroit is different was because people said I'm too much on a soapbox. <laughs> but now that you've said that, I may lead an initiative to make this local text on local uh, government. I like that. Count me in, and I may put you in the mix. Count me in because people don't people don't know. know. They haven't got a clue, and you can see them when they come down to city council and the things they talk about at council and to council and ask council to do. The people they vote for. They clearly don't understand the difference between the various bodies of government, and and, and it affects their quality of life on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So something every citizen should know. Yeah. Not to be a requirement, quite frankly, that you've got to go through that so that you'll know. That's what my mom told me. And like I say, other than Delor- Dolores, you said. Love that lady to death. Yeah, she was something else. <laughs> she used that's to why we named, That's why we named that park after her over there, man. She she ran that neighborhood over there. She carried around those pamphlets like, well, this is what they do. And I'm like, hey, you about to give me uh, about to give me man. like two pounds of literature. That's right. You didn't mess with Dolores Bennett, man. You didn't mess with Dolores Bennett. Giving two pounds of literature about like, well, this is what they're supposed to do, and this is how they. Like, I never wanted to be on the county. <laughs> Force me into that. <laughs> so, this has been a great discussion. This was we'll great. Definitely man. get you back. Uh, this will come the week of the show. Talk a little bit about the show, where they can get tickets, which I'm All sure right. I may be reaching out to Dana. Also yeah, for that yeah. She, she too. probably she probably gonna send you something. But okay, I'm with we're you. opening night is September 15th uh, okay. at eight o'clock at the Museum of African American History. Okay. Uh, we've got a website, Facebook, all of that. You can go on charliebeckham.com. 
charliebeckhamlive.com. You can go on Eventbrite. You can go on Facebook and put in Seem Like a Good Idea at the Time. All of that will pop up. And tickets you can get through and online. Okay, so the 15th, 15th uh, what of other September. nights? Well, right now, we just have the one night, but much to my chagrin, the tickets are going so fast that it looks like show. we're going to do more than one show. And so I, I, I'm, they're, they're pushing me into another occupation, which is trying to be an actor, which I wasn't looking forward to. But I'm, I, people, I don't, people want to hear the story. And so the tickets are going fast. We, we're two-thirds of the way through the first mm. act already. That is phenomenal. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to this production myself. Yeah, I'll be gonna jet be fun. setting gonna be fun. from uh, this Focus Hope event I got that same <laughs> day right, over there. Right, right. So I'm going to be in effect as I already know. My aunt's going to be like, we got to get there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, man. This was great. Uh, I look forward to doing it again. Peace be.